VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today on this uh, remarkably calm day after a bit of wind and such. I understand the wind's still up a bit um, on the West Coast, as well as uh, heavy rainfall. And it's uh, been a real deluge, hasn't it, for the Southwest Coast in particular. So anyway, be careful out there if you are traveling. And it always uh, amazes me to hear how our listeners contribute to our programming. Uh, It's great. Uh, And that's what VOCM Open Line is all about, of course. But uh, throughout the course of our morning show and uh, throughout the day, people providing little traffic updates and the like. So thanks to Leonard and others who contributed to the program this morning, uh, providing us with updates on the traffic situation in and around Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, this news has just come down the details of which we still do not know, but it looks as though they're going back to the drawing board when it comes to plans to replace Her Majesty's Penitentiary. The province has reissued a request for qualifications for the replacement of HMP. The announcement comes as the province reevaluates the parameters of the project in light of construction costs that have ballooned by 200 to 300 percent. Government says the aim is to procure a facility that is fiscally responsible while maintaining new uh, planned programming. In the meantime, the province says it will implement temporary measures until HMP is replaced. Of course, uh, parts of that facility dating back to the mid-1800s, 1865 thereabouts, Um, and that includes the possibility of temporary outbuildings to increase space for accommodation services and programming. As you know, a portion of HMP, one of the um, newer portions, actually, Actually, of HMP had to be shut down for remediation not too long ago uh, due to the presence of black mold. Well, the Minister of Transportation and Works, John Abbott, and Justice Minister John Hogan will speak with reporters this morning at 10.30, and VOCM News will be there. We'll keep you up to date on all of that and uh, and provide you with the latest information there. This is an ongoing saga. One of the uh, first stories I remember working on when I started in this business was about replacement of HMP, would you believe? And there have been a number of locations that have been uh, earmarked or identified over the last 30 plus years for replacement of HMP and here we are no progress made to date Uh, so it is um, for politicians a bit of a tough sell but I think most people now understand that these types of facilities serve um, not just um, um, you know in terms of punishment because some people say "Ah, well it's a punishment so who cares the worse it is the better but that's not what it's all about is it It, you don't want uh, people to go into that uh, type of a system and come out worse than they were when they went in you want to provide them with the programming uh, available to um, make them a productive member of society. And uh, now we have a, a serious workplace situation whereby correctional officers are having to work um, for long hours in less than ideal conditions. Uh, so that has an impact as well. Um, anyway, if anyone has any thoughts on that, they're certainly welcome to give us a call. Big news out of Ottawa. The federal government giving automakers 12 years to phase out combustion engine cars, trucks, and SUVs and gradually increase the proportion 
portion of electric vehicles on their sale lots each year. Environment Minister Stephen Guibault has announced new regulations that will effectively end the sale of new passenger vehicles powered only by gasoline or diesel by 2035. He says the regulations will encourage automakers to make more battery-powered cars and trucks available in Canada, starting with 20% of all sales in 2026, rising to 100% in 2035. Well, are the automakers uh, prepared for that? And how will this work in terms of um, regulations that may or may not be, um, in, you know, in place in the United States, where most of the big automakers are uh, based? Um, if you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. One of the um, um, there's a number of things that uh, people factor in when they consider whether or not to go with the uh, standard combustion engine type vehicle or with a uh, electric. Uh, offering. And one of those considerations, and it's a serious one for a lot of people, is cost. Well, John Siri of Drive Electric, Electric NL spoke with VOCM News yesterday. He's hoping the new federal regulations will make electric vehicles more affordable. He believes the new standards will put pressure on the auto industry to provide affordable, eco-friendly options. He says automakers will be forced to offer different models of EVs that have a cost-friendly sticker price and will cost less to operate annually in comparison to a fuel-burning vehicle. Also, the infrastructure that's needed is going to have to increase uh, significantly. And I know there's been uh, a number of measures taken to um, increase the number of charging stations in a Newfoundland and Labrador. But um, if you're planning a trip across the island, you need to map out where those charging stations are. And if there are only so many available and there might be two or three electric vehicles already there charging up, well, then you um, are going to be extending on your uh, travel plans, aren't you? So um, we need to get the infrastructure in place as well. Are we near ready? Well, we have 12 years to figure it out. So uh, if anybody has any thoughts on that, have you uh, considered an electric vehicle yourself? Have you noticed any impediments to getting an electric vehicle? What are some of your decision-making when, when it comes to uh, buying a new vehicle? Uh, by all means, uh, do give us a call. Well, um, John Abbott says the number of tent city residents there near Colonial Building has dwindled to a small handful. I was up in the area last night and didn't see any activity there whatsoever. Um, now, unless, uh, you know, people were uh, hid uh, from my immediate view, but uh, noticed um, nothing happening up there last night. Um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, there will be the continual kind of ebb and flow one would think uh, from these types of uh, situations, but um, government making good on its promise to ensure that people have adequate housing in time for Christmas, and we'll get a little update on that in the coming days as well. Well, a very charming story out of Carboneer, and it's related to uh, this uh, steady influx of Ukrainians that we've been seeing coming to Newfoundland 
Newfoundland and Labrador. I follow a, um, a Ukrainian um, Facebook page, and there's um, people coming in all the time um, on a regular basis. People just arriving from uh, Ukraine or other parts of the world via Ukraine, if you know what I'm saying, um, and uh, saying, you know, hi, I'm here. I have these skill sets. I'm willing to work. Uh, let us know if there's any uh, work in your area. Well, there um, was a young woman who uh, reached out to the town of Carbonair and said, you know, my parents have a lot of skill when it comes to um, clock uh, repair and, and clock making. And uh, noticed that the clock in the clock tower in the old Carbonier town office um, hadn't been working for quite some time. It hasn't been working not as long as I can remember anyway. Uh, 118 years old. Um, it was originally purchased and installed by uh, Joseph Roper of St. John's during the reconstruction of the building back in 1905. Well, Yulia Veratenik uh, reached out to the town of Carbonier via Facebook indicating that her parents wanted to help fix the clock because they have that type of skill set. They were on their way from Ukraine to Canada at the time. Well, yesterday, Alexander and Ludmila Pass uh, showed up in Carbonier and fixed the clock. The old town office building now serves, of course, as a museum in Carbonier. It's a very beautiful and stately uh, building right there on the waterfront overlooking uh, Carbonier Harbor and uh, Conception Bay. And um, in the next little while, you should be able to see some pictures at vocm.com. But very charming indeed. Um, A lot of Ukrainians coming to Newfoundland and Labrador with some really specialized and uh, technical skill sets. And um, one would think that over time, um, Newfoundland and Labrador is going to see a real benefit from um, the number of people who have been coming to Newfoundland and Labrador with these extraordinary skill sets. Not just Ukrainians, by the way, but uh, people from all over the world. And um, that brings me to uh, another story in that um, immigration numbers uh, way up across Canada, as a matter of fact. Um, The latest statistics from Statistics Canada show that immigration pushed Canada's population to more than 40.5 million people by the start of October. For many years, we were sort of stalling out around the 33 million mark. Well, all of a sudden, it's pushed up to 40.5 million. Statistics Canada reports the country added more than 430,000 residents during the third quarter, which was the fastest pace of population growth in any quarter since 1957, when we saw a huge influx of immigration into Canada. Well, most of the non-permanent residents who arrived in the country were work and study permit holders uh, and um, others were refugee claimants. So making big strides and big contributions to uh, the country and to the province as a whole. And in fact, I had a conversation with um, Andrew Parsons, who is the minister responsible for technology in Newfoundland and Labrador. And he says, immigration is where it's at when it comes to all these bright young minds making contributions and uh, adding their brain power uh, to this uh, province. So uh, some uh, really good news stories coming out of that as well. Um, we're going to leave it there for the time being. Oh, I need to ask you this. Are you ready? <laughs> oh, uh, are you ready for Christmas? <laughs> I uh, got felled by one of the many, many viruses that are in circulation 
last week. I was out for the full count last week. And when I came out of my stupor and was finally able to sit upright again, my first thought was, I'm so far behind on everything. Everything that I was hoping to accomplish last week, thrown out the window. So now I'm in, uh, what do they call it, full-on panic mode. Anyway, I will uh, uh, persevere, I'm sure, and uh, do well. But uh, y'all ready for Christmas? Why do we put this pressure on ourselves? Uh, it reminds me a bit of, uh, you know, uh, uh, wedding, getting married, and all of the stress that goes into trying to get all that uh, prepared. And uh, all for one day, where it's, you know, blink your eyes, it's over. Uh, anyway, uh, here we are. Uh, if you have any um, Christmas stress stories to share with us, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Or any nice Christmas stories. Listen, we're winding down. We're getting to the end um, of the uh, the broadcast year for us here at VOCM, for the regular programming, we should say. Uh, open line winding down at the end of this week. So if you have any light, uh, happy Christmas greetings, or um, you got people coming home you haven't seen in a while, or anything fun or uplifting that you want to share with us by all means do give us a call uh, this is open line for a reason you're welcome to give us a call with anything that happens to be on your mind and the lines are currently open the numbers coming up right after this we'll be back right after the break and we're back on vocm open line we're going to start the show this morning on line one with robin legro hello good morning linda how are you i'm good how are you not too bad. Um, I actually just called to let your newsroom know uh, that there actually were seven people at, uh, staying at Penn City last night. Um, I wasn't there myself, uh, but I was speaking directly with uh, two people who were. I know that of yesterday afternoon, we had six, and apparently one more showed up last night. So I, it's really difficult to to do a number count. Um, no, indeed, because the there's always going to be an ebb and flow, I would imagine. Well, and what what's not being taken into account is that, you know, people are being evicted every day. Um, and rightfully or wrongfully, um, th- it's a reality of what's happening. So you may address... You know, one or the you know one or two people that are down there, but no long-term solutions um, are, are being provided here at the rate that's going to keep up with the amount of evictions um, and people who are ending up uh, without an option. And isn't so, that the difficulty, though? Because I mean, uh, longer-term solutions will take time. Absolutely. However, um, it's a good time to say, uh, you know, there are innovative solutions that are possible in the meantime that will provide people with an opportunity to be more safe, um, you know, if they choose not to go to the options that are provided to them, which is a private shelter, um, you know, where you're not fed properly, um, you're not, uh, you don't feel safe. I mean, I have been in a number of these uh, private shelters that are being offered, and I wouldn't stay there. I would choose another option myself. Um, and, and, and the same goes for, for some of the larger ones as well. You know, there's nothing, there's something to be said about your own space where you can close a door and be alone um, and and feel the, the safety of a community around you. Um, and so that's, that's the, the feeling that's not being expressed um, publicly. I find uh, about what's happening at uh, at Tent City and what they're actually providing there. It's it's a sense of community. It's a sense of um, welcoming um, 
an understanding. Is um, the the whole issue that's um, uh, you know come to the fore or become uh, I guess more visible um, that was Tent City or is Tent City uh, is is that more symptomatic of underlying issues? I mean, how are we dealing with the underlying issues when it comes to um, mental health and addictions? Well, I mean, I think it goes well beyond mental health and addictions, but that's a good place to start. Um, You know, we we have gone from providing, um, you know, regular uh, psychiatric services to people. Um, No, that that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. And so... um, Basically, you can only access um, psychiatric services or mental health services if you can afford private care or if you're attached to a, a family doctor who's willing to advocate for you. At this point, the, the only thing you can, the only care you can get is ambulatory care if, if you show up at the, um, uh, at the Waterford, at their uh, triage. Because and, and even then you're often sent home. And so we might have, you know, some of these peer support programs and various different programs being offered, um, you know, by different pots of government funding here and there, but they're not working together. They're not working in a cohesive strategy. You know, when the government had their poverty reduction strategy back in, you know, the early 20, you know, when it started 2006, um, and 2015 is when we stopped um, investing in that particular strategy. But, you know, there was a 150-page document that outlined how all of their the inputs related to each other. Um, and so th- this five-point plan that we've been given uh, recently uh, actually doesn't solve, doesn't address any of the uh, immediate concerns that we're having. It only uh, attempts to address the long-term concerns. And so a few people who have been volunteering down at Tent City have come together and uh, with the community foundations of Newfoundland and Labrador have set up a fund uh, and we're going to be raising money to bring down a new um, um, uh, unit. Uh, Actually, I'm going to let my friend Mark talk about that, but um, we are looking at innovative different housing solutions, tiny homes, modular units, uh, nothing that is permanent uh, because we want to express the need for long-term stable housing. But at the same time, we want to show that, you know, providing better options that are safer, um, they provide warmth and dignity and privacy to people is an option that we can handle ourselves if government's not willing to do it. So we can have this community response. Um, and we need to be looking at different options. We need to be considering how we can welcome people who are ending up in this situation into a community. How can we use the community centers as a way of providing, uh, you know, the sense of belonging to people? A big issue that they have is they don't feel like they belong anywhere. And anywhere that has to do with, you know, it, it's an us and them uh, situation. It's, it's how government is presenting it. Um, but they are us. We are them. And it could be you or, or your neighbor tomorrow. And uh, with- when, but when it turns, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, when it comes to this, these, some of these, um, you know, as you put it, temporary solutions like tiny homes and that sort of thing, that's one thing. That's, that's, a, that's a structure. Uh, that's, a, that's an immediate shelter, if you know what I'm saying. But what about those, yeah. you know, as, as government says, wraparound supports? What about the supports that are needed for a person to help them get through their day and ensure that they're the best person that they can be? 
we need to build communities, not homes. We need to build communities. And we need to focus on creating communities. Like, you know, when we started, uh, when we put a real focus into the community centers um, back in the 70s and 80s, and we did the five community centers in St. John's, you know, that's, that's the direction we need to go to. If we're going to get these tiny homes, we put them on site at a community center where they have access to bathrooms, a food bank, uh, a public health nurse. You know, these services are coming in and out of these community centers, and we don't have uh, enough resources going to these community centers to support the work that they're actually doing on the ground. And so we need to have um, a, a holistic approach. We need to bring everyone together, including those who are in the system, um, using the system, and find out ways that we can all work together um, to to you know, bring, bring some dignity and sense of belonging and um, safety to our communities again. If we just continue to approach things as they're in silos, okay, so here's mental health, we deal with that. Here's the prison, we deal with that. All of these things are connected. Um, and, you know, I heard a, an interesting interview with the um, head of the, uh, the NLTA who was speaking out about the situations in the classroom. And my background is in early childhood education and advocating for that. And I can tell you that that's, that's the reason why we were advocating for publicly funded early childhood education, because if we can get kids earlier and get those social emotional skills that they don't seem to be getting at home, those lessons, you know, the, 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 the uh, anecdote of the kindergarten teacher saying, you know, uh, well, if they don't come in knowing their ABCs, that's not a big deal. I can teach them that. But if they, if they, if they come in and they don't know how to wait in line, if they don't know how to wait their turn, if they don't know how to politely ask uh, a classmate for something, those are the issues that we're seeing in the classroom as they get worse. And so looking at establishing those skills and creating a community where we have respect for each other, that's where we start. Robin, I really appreciate your uh, contribution this morning. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for hearing it. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Bye Bye-bye. Uh, Robin Legro there uh, regarding uh, what's needed to uh, help um, not just uh, the current residents of Tent City, but um, the, you know, the ongoing issues, I suppose, that have led to that uh, gathering of people uh, on the lawn near uh, Colonial Building. And, um, you know, that this is not just a single Band-Aid solution, but um, uh, many aspects um, need to be addressed. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. A bit of a slow start to the morning. Uh, you're welcome to give us a call. Here are the numbers to do so. Ring in the new year with a special edition of the Irish Newfoundland Show, 9 p.m. New Year's Eve. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Uh, we're going to go now to Mark Wilson. You're on the air. Hello, Mark. Hey, Linda. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to follow up on what Robin was talking about there. Um, and also, you know, it's a really exciting day for us. We just uh, we just launched our charitable fundraiser um, at about 4.30 yesterday. Um, and now we've already raised over $1,000 on the website. Um and we know that there's another four thousand dollars coming very soon from uh, a lovely uh, 
band, uh, Newfoundland band, the once did a, a donation drive for our uh, initiative. So we've, we're, we're already uh, going to be about $5,000 towards our $22,000 goal. And who is and we? Goal, well, we, uh, Robin and I have been working on this for a long time, uh, for a, about three weeks, I'd say, with the Community Federation of Newfoundland and Labrador to introduce uh, a charitable fund to bring down the house. And uh, what this is, is it's, it's a 13 and a half foot by eight foot uh, unit. It's 10 feet tall. And it's one of the solutions that exists in our country for basically getting people out of tents and into safe, warm accommodations. Now, uh, you know, the, the structure is one thing, but what, what about where it's placed? Yeah, and that's uh, the, the, exactly why we're bringing one down. So we're going to bring one down. Uh, we just need to hit that goal of $22,000. Um, we are still looking for um, other, you know, uh, trucking companies, shipping companies, and businesses on the ground that can help us to move it around once, uh, once we get it here. We want to bring this to different places. We want to show uh, folks what this is. Um, it's a CSA approved building. So, you know, we didn't want to start building our own. We know we could do it. Um, you know, people who are living in tents could build, could, uh, could build their own unit. They could, um, they could live in something that was more protective than a tent, but this is something that's been established and it's been being used in various jurisdictions across the country, especially in Ontario. It's, it's being used in Waterloo. It's being, uh, we know that Peterborough just got 50 units as well. And, uh, and I'll just, to answer your question. So where, guess, where is the, sorry, I did just to back up a bit because, uh, I look for information. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an information, uh, hog. Um, so where are these coming from? Who are, who's, who's manufacturing them? What, you know, what does it come, where does it come from? Yeah. So I, in a second, I'll, I'll tell you where the website is, where people can donate as well. Um, this is a unit that's, that's produced in Cambridge, Ontario. Um, it's, it's made by now housing. Um, and these units are, I mean, they're in full production at this point because they've, they've got, like I said, units that went to Waterloo, uh, 50 that went to Peterborough. Um, they're making units for, I believe, London and other parts of, um, other parts of Ontario. Um, this will be something that we believe is the first of its kind in Newfoundland and Labrador when we get it down. Um, and the place where people can donate is again, it's a charitable fundraiser. So it, you can get a, a, a CRA tax slip with this thanks to the cooperation with the Community Federation of Newfoundland and Labrador. So you can just go to their website, or if you want the, the, the link, it's uh, CFNL slash bringing down the house. 
So once you, let's say we do establish these uh, types of units, these tiny homes in a particular area, they'd have to be hooked up to infrastructure and they'd have to have enough, uh, uh, one would think, uh, land around them to allow for a certain level of infrastructure. So, I mean, it, it yeah. this is just a, a first step, we'll say. So how, how would you foresee that this would be established? Well, yeah, I mean, we know that here in Newfoundland, Labrador, we're, we're slow to get the trends that exist elsewhere. You know, something might happen in New York and then Toronto and then move down here later. Just think about, uh, you know, as a humorous sort of example, think about this, all the skinny jeans. I think I'm wearing skinny jeans right now. There's probably nobody on the mainland wearing skinny jeans anymore in Toronto, I'm guessing. Uh, so trends and That's a bit of TMI, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, these things happen. Uh, like, we didn't have a tent city till this year. But tent cities have been ex- existing elsewhere for years and years, right? Um, what, what Peterborough's done, Linda, is they brought in, and, and they had full support of their city council, um, they brought in uh, 50 of these units, um, I believe the the total, I, I, I had been reading 1.5 million, but I think it's more around 2 um, million. And, and so they've placed 50 units in a uh, city-owned uh, lot. Um, it was actually where the tent city was um, in Peterborough. So they, they put these 50 units there. Uh, there already was a pre-existing building that was owned by the city of Peterborough. Um, that building had um, and still has a kitchen facilities. It's got bathroom and shower facilities. And it's also the home for the support workers that go along with this. And what they learned was, you know, to do this right, you've got to have the supports in place. And the supports includes um, social workers and folks that can help everybody uh, to get to the next step. So this is an interim solution that brings people to uh, to a place where they can access those services like what Robin was talking about, like the, like the psychiatry, like the mental health, like the addictions. Um, you know, it, what we're finding at Tenth City is that there are people that just don't even have proper ID because when you're homeless, it's really easy for your ID to get stolen or lost. So, you know, these folks in Peterborough that work out of the central unit will provide the supports for people to get what they need. Um, it could be contacting income support. It could be contacting housing and advocating uh, to housing to find a, a more permanent solution. Um, and how do you but, establish who gains access to these units? Well, in Peterborough, I think that there was it was, it was probably a prioritization um, uh, list, much like annual housing has a prioritization list. Um, we're going to, I mean, this is why we're bringing one down. And this is why we wanted to do this really quickly. And we wanted to set a goal that was very, very achievable because we just want to get one here. We want to start this discussion. We want to start the dialogue um, you know, like Robin had mentioned, you know, uh, we think like the the community uh, centers has been a real uh, impactful way to um, to help folks. 
uh, for years and years and years. So we're going to, we're, we're hoping to connect with them and, and sort of bring the, bring the, the home over to them and show them what it's all about. And then we can discuss the, the practical aspects like, you know, where, where would be, be the kitchen access? Where would be the bathroom access? Where could supportive, um, you know, the support workers um, work from? Where is a place that we can get like a, you know, a hookup for power? Because these do require electricity um, just because that's how the, that's how the, the thing is heated. Um, so, you know, those dialogue, that dialogue and those conversations are going to happen when we bring this down. It's going to be so much easier to have a physical unit in place to be able to start these discussions and continue these discussions. And then who knows what will come out of that, Linda? It could be 50 units in Pleasantville. It could be uh, four units in Rabbit Town. Um, we might we might be able to uh, find infill spaces um, within the city that are not being used. We've had people reach out to us and say, I want this on my property, you know, uh, around the bay. I want to help people too. So, um, you know, and, and this is just, this is just the start. We know that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are probably the most ingenious folks in Canada. Would you agree with me? That goes without saying. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, why can't we build these ourselves? Um, there are other there are other shelters like this. There are other units and buildings like this around Canada. Nova Scotia has some. Uh, they're smaller. Um, they're not as established in se- in being set up for this type of solution. So, once we bring this down, once we see how it's all put together, once we you know once once we get our eyes on it, I think we're going to have a chance to. Uh, really incubate some ideas. So, you know, like when, you, when there's a gentleman named Herb who's called Patty a number of times and said, you know, we, we've got a, a crew of people. We want to help. We want to build stuff to keep these folks at Tent City and other homeless folks or unhoused folks safe. So the opportunity there, and Robin and, and I have been talking about this quite a bit, um, you know, we're, we're going to show off this unit and then we're going to open it up for our own solutions we've got mud engineering we've got we've got uh, carpentry uh, schools we've got uh, great architects we've got great designers we've got great businesses that can contribute and want to contribute and we've got communities across the province who want to find solutions like this Mark, so I think it's going to bring all kinds of information and ideas out of the province. Mark, we we received just received an email from someone in Lab West who was most interested in this idea. They wanted you to give out the website again. Yeah, so the website for donations, and uh, all we're looking for right now is twenty two thousand dollars. We're looking uh, to try to get this unit shipped down from Cambridge, Ontario. Um, which is happens to be where I grew up, and I'm going to go there very soon in the next few days, and I'm going to be uh, posting on my social media um, about this, and you know directly from the factory. Um, the, our fundraiser uh, is at CFNL, and that is again the Community Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. So CFNL slash bringing down the house. 
And I just really want to thank uh, the Community Foundation. We had some in-kind support from John uh, John Devereaux as well to uh, at Perfect Day to help us with the graphic. And we think this is a really fun initiative that's going to put people into a, a warm, safe environment. And um, if people are um, interested in their own community, um, it's Now Housing, is that what it's called? Yeah, Now Housing. Uh, you can find them on Facebook. Um, they're also, they have a website as well. Um, and you can see, uh, you can even look up Peterborough Tiny Homes, or you can look up Waterloo. Um, you can see the types of types of initiatives and over the course of of the next month or so or however long it takes to get this you know really rolling i expect that this fundraiser is going to be uh pretty fast okay. so i'm hoping we have this unit down you know in the next week or two um we'll be uh, we'll be hosting a number of sessions with some of the folks uh and that are that are you know, doing these kind of uh, providing these kind of solutions cross country, and we'll be providing information uh, from them. Mark, we have to leave it there, but I really appreciate your call this morning and uh, keep us up to date. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Linda. And uh, again, CFNL slash bringing down the house. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Uh, and your thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call or anything else that you want to bring up here on VOCM Open Line. We do have lines open. Now is your chance to give us a call. I'll just give you this as a little thought starter. As uh, federal liberals and new Democrats negotiate what a future national drug plan should look like, a new survey suggests that Pharmacare is not at the top of most Canadians' priority list. The Leger survey asked people to name their top Two healthcare priorities. Only 18% of respondents said that government should prioritize creating a new universal single payer drug plan. More funding towards surgical wait times, and we've seen those issues um, uh, unfold here. Building more long term care homes to allow people who have been in hospital beds for extended periods of time to move out of the hospital situation and open up beds. And expanding mental health services, which is a an ongoing conversation we've been having here in Newfoundland and Labrador for quite some time, all had significantly more support. Your thoughts? Give us a call. Anything else that you want to raise, by all means, do so. Here are the numbers to call. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We have lines open now is your opportunity to give us a call. We've been talking about uh, homelessness and housing solutions, but uh, that doesn't mean that we're limited to that particular uh, topic, as important as it is. Uh, There are lots more things happening in Newfoundland and Labrador, both good and bad. And uh, anything that happens to be going on in your life that you want to share with us now, by all means, do so. We're also winding down as we head into the holiday season. um, And a lot of people's uh, thoughts are going towards, uh, I don't know, memories and nostalgia. And um, usually Christmas season is a nostalgic time. You take out all your stuff from the year before and it brings back a lot of memories of uh, uh, people and times past. So uh, uh, if you're feeling, uh, you know, particularly, I don't know, whimsical or whatever the case may be, by all means, give us a call and let us know uh, what's on your mind. Some old Christmas traditions, of course, Newfoundland and Labrador 
Store has uh, many, many uh, Christmas traditions that live on to this day. And um, I saw an interesting uh, program the other day uh, on BBC One uh, out of Northern Ireland, as a matter of fact, and they were talking about mummering. And uh, although they called it mumming, um, uh, we call it jannying or mummering. Anyway, uh, and there were some uh, very interesting um, similarities. I mean, each area has its own sort of variation of that, but the uh, mummering tradition comes from uh, the British Isles and came over here many, many, many moons ago. And we have a whole plethora of uh, different traditions here in Newfoundland and Labrador when it comes to that that visiting tradition over the holiday uh, season, Uh, both uh, terrifying and... (laughs) And entertaining, um, the whole, uh, you know, any mummers allowed in. Uh, but with, there's ribbon fools in the Pooch Cove area and all kinds of interesting things. Um, the ribbon fools are really uh, spectacular when it comes to the amount of work that goes into um, some of those uh, costumes and the like and the sort of the, the headsets and all of those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, one of my favorites, favorites, uh, when I say favorites, I mean favorite and um, all also terrified by is, uh, of course, the hobby horse, <laughs> which uh, can be quite intimidating uh, with that clack, 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 clack. Uh, but isn't it um, always the most fun when you're so, even just a little bit scared? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, especially when you know that there's no real uh, harm. Uh, so uh, anyway, if you have any thoughts or you know, memories or anything like that, anything uh, lighthearted that you want to share with us, uh, you're certainly welcome to do so. And uh, we have lines open now, that and anything else. Of course, the big news that we're watching over the next uh, little while, around 10.30 or so, uh, the Ministers uh, of uh, Transportation and Infrastructure and Justice, John Abbott and John Hogan, are going to be uh, calling a news conference and speaking with reporters about the reissue of a request for qualifications for replacement of Her Majesty's Penitentiary. And uh, basically, it's because the cost of construction and the like has um, uh, gone up significantly since the original request for qualifications went out. So basically, we're going back to the drawing board by the looks of it to try and come up with a plan that will uh, incorporate um, the most fiscally responsible Uh, replacement for that aging um, structure while maintaining um, the needed programming that's going to be uh, needed to help people who go into that system, not just uh, languish, but to um, get them back on, a, I guess, a, an even keel or, a, you know, back into uh, society and being um, productive members of society and best, being the best people that they can be. The RFQ represents the first stage of a two-stage procurement process for the 280-bed capacity correctional facility. Following the RFQ process, a request for proposals will be issued to design, build, finance, and maintain the new facility. And in in the interim, the provincial government will be implementing temporary enhancements under Her Majesty's Penitentiary until Her Majesty's Penitentiary, sorry, is replaced. Uh, That will include uh, the possibility of temporary outbuildings, for accommodation services and programming. Um, One of the questions we asked ourselves in the newsroom this morning when this news conference um, was announced was the fact that... um, 
where um where you're going to put these uh, because there's a very limited um, window uh, or, or sorry um, land base around HMP so where are you going to place it anyway if you have any thoughts on that you're certainly welcome to give us a call we're going to go now to ah Heritage NL Andrea O'Brien hello hi good morning how are you this morning I'm good. How are you? Good. So, one of the most exciting times of the year before us. Yes. <laughs> and of course, Harry. Down the days. Yeah, absolutely. The 12 days of Christmas, starting on Christmas Day itself. So, um, of course, lots of wonderful um, traditions here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I understand you are on the Mummers Festival board as well. Yes, I'm one of the founding members of the Mummers Festival board. Uh, the first year the Mummers Festival began was actually through Heritage NL. It was a project of Heritage NL. And then the executive director, uh, Ryan Davis, uh, loved it so much that he founded the Mummers Festival board the following year. And so. It's, there's so many variations to the theme, if you will. Uh, like I said, I watched this uh, program out of the UK, and it was talking about uh, uh, mumming in uh, Northern Ireland. And um, uh, while it looked different, uh, there were many similar elements. So they had these big headdresses that they made out of straw uh, that were various characters, uh, one being like a bird-like creature, another being a, a, a big, imposing kind of uh, masculine sort of face and another one being the horse. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have a lot of these, um, and a lot of this comes from pagan tradition. Oh, it's definitely pagan from the from the beginning, yes, and and of course a lot of pagan traditions uh, around this time of year were kind of incorporated into you know Christianity, uh, but yes, for sure those uh, those original traditions would have went back way way back into kind of pagan celebrations around this time of the year, and considering um, you know the immigration history in Newfoundland, uh, a lot of the mummering practices here then are influenced by what happened. Uh, over in Europe. And the horse, of course, a powerful fertility symbol. Yeah, the hobby horse. Well, my, my kind of interest in the Mummers Festival kind of began because of the hobby horse. Uh, as a student of folklore, I looked at the hobby horse tradition in my own community of Cape Royal, and there was a family there that had uh, carried the horse around for Christmas for a couple of generations at least. And that happened right up until the 1990s. I'm thinking it's probably the last place in the province uh, that there was actually a hobby horse going around previous to the Mummers Festival kind of reviving the tradition. And uh, one man I interviewed at the time about the hobby horse tradition in Cape Royal, um, and that was back in the 90s, and he was, you know, an elderly gentleman at the time. He said that the older fellas who, you know, they were probably going back into the early 1900s or late 1800s, that they actually went around with with real animal skulls uh, out in uh, Christmas time. And it was usually around uh, old Christmas Day on January 6th. But I guess animals have been slaughtered around that time and they used what was left over as part of that whole mumming tradition. And it all incorporates, you know, all these uh, basic themes of life and rebirth and death and all of those kinds of things. It sort of encapsulates it all in the same vein with the the skull and this fertility symbol because I understand in some mumming traditions this whole idea is that uh, you know you cover over a a couple or a woman who was uh, hoping to uh, become pregnant. Yeah and I mean I don't know how much those actual kind of origins 
um, you know, I don't know how much of that feeling went down through the generations. I think by the time it got down to, say, the 1900s and people were bringing out a hobby horse, it was more looked at as a fun thing to do. Um, they would still go around and kind of scare people and chase people in the house. But I don't know how much connection there was left, you know, consciously to that kind of earlier uh, beginnings of the tradition. I think it was more of something that, well, you know, our grandfathers did it and our fathers did it. So we're doing the same thing around around um, Christmas time as well. And what is it about the costuming? Uh, because some of them, uh, like you say, they usually use, um, you know, whatever is is happens to be available, but also some of them could have been quite clever and elaborate. Some were very elaborate. In, in the case of Newfoundland, uh, the ribbon fool tradition that's in Flat Rock and Pooch Cove, that's very elaborate, where people would actually spend a lot of time preparing those costumes before they brought them out into the community. And the ribbon fools uh, was more of a kind of an outdoor tradition. Uh, they didn't necessarily visit houses, but they kind of, you know, wandered around the community, walked around the community. A lot of times they'd have a little stick in their hand, um, even with sometimes with like a, a blown up uh, pig's bladder on the end of it. And they would chase people and sometimes give them a smack with the stick, which they called a swab. Uh, but that took a lot of preparation. So you had kind of ribbon fool troops that were going around and they would get their costumes ready way far in advance. They'd have a lot of different color ribbons on their costumes. They'd have a, a kind of a, a headdress made with ribbons coming off that. So there was a lot of thought went into that. There was, you know, preparation beforehand for that. And, um, you know, a lot of mummering that people are familiar with now is more of a spur of the moment thing. So you might, you know, call up a group of friends some afternoon or some evening and say, hey, do you want to go in the mummers tonight? And you grab whatever's handy, um, you know, and you, you, you grab things to uh, disguise yourself because the whole point of it is you're visiting friends, you're visiting people who know you, but it's that whole kind of guessing game. So you want to make yourself look as much unlike yourself as possible when you're going out. And of course, it was almost quashed altogether because of laws, because uh, some people were using the mummering tradition to, uh, I guess, uh, get back at people, usually on a political yeah. level. Or I, I, I kind of have a little problem with that. I think, I think that that might have applied in places where there was a bigger population. But I think there was this myth that mummering stopped. Mummering never stopped. I came from a place on the southern shore that there was always mummers in one community up there during Christmas. Um, I think the laws might have been imposed in, like I said, bigger centres, uh, St. John's, Harbour Grace, Carbonair, those kind of areas, uh, where there had been a lot of violence associated with mummering. But a lot of it was kind of settling grudges under the guise of being a mummer. I think uh, when those laws were introduced in the 1860s, it might have had, um, you know, some kind of uh, impact on that tradition in bigger areas, but mumming never stopped. Um, it continued all over the province in, in different communities and in different forms. The law wasn't taken off the books until the 1990s, but I think it was one of those kind of laws that really was never uh, strictly imposed on a regular basis. Uh, there was much outcry uh, in the 1860s because someone had actually been murdered uh, during uh, the mumming season, and that law was introduced in a way, I think, to kind of quell the uproar about that. 
and people were kind of using mummering, like I said, to settle grievances and to cause kind of general mischief. It was under a section of the law, the nuisance uh, section of the law which was like roaming dogs and mummers were kind of grouped together in the same section. <laughs> but again, I don't know how how strictly it was enforced. And people continue to do it. And of course, on the coast of Labrador, uh, the uh, variation is Nellyuk night. Yeah, and so Nellyuk night and old Christmas day. And I actually was fortunate enough to be in Hopedale uh, one year for Nellyuk night. And it's a combination of, um, you know, kind of if it's Indigenous and Moravian combination. Um, it, I was absolutely terrified the night that I was there. Uh, and again, it's it's kind of similar to the ribbon fools that the Naliuk walk around the community. Um, and the tradition is kind of changing a little bit now. There's some Naliuks that actually uh, visit houses and there's community events with Naliuk. But um, what happens there is they're, they're out on the ice and they walk in from the east on, on uh, the Feast of the Epiphany. So they walk, they walk in over the ice and come to the community and then they start chasing all the kids around. And if a Naliuk catches you, you have to sing a song. It's a particular song that you have to sing uh, before they let you go. And uh, in some places, the Naliuks are known for, for bringing presents. And I always said the kids up in, um, say, along the north coast were probably uh, so lucky when it came to Christmas time because they get a, a gift the night that Advent begins. They get, uh, of course, Christmas and then again on all Christmas Day. So there's three three different times of, of gift giving. And, of course, there's a beautiful, beautiful film uh, out um, that was put out uh, yeah. last year, if not the year before, um, yeah. about Naliuk Night. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, by all means do so, an NFB film. I forget the name of the Jenny, filmmaker. Jenny That's Jenny. it. Yeah, um, yeah just absolutely uh, beautiful and, and haunting in some um, ways. Yeah, it, it really captures the whole spirit of, of what that night is like. It is, uh, like I said, it is terrifying. I was up there as a teacher uh, that year, and I know some of the teachers that were up from Newfoundland, uh, they wouldn't go out that night. But <laughs> but I, uh, coming from a folklore background, I had to see what was happening. So um, my friend uh, from from Hopedale came up and uh, and got me and brought me out on, on Skidoo. And uh, she'd kind of she'd slow down and let the Naluks catch up with you and then take off. But all around the community there was kids who were running away from these groups of Naluk. And uh, yeah, it was something that I had never experienced. It's definitely different from any tradition I ever grew up with. And fit. Hmm? <laughs> They're so fit. They can oh, really oh, yes. take I mean, up a lot of land. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they have, I mean, they have a lot of clothing on them. Or, you know, a lot of them have the kind of... Uh, fur clothing on them and you know these really big masks that they have on and oh yeah and they're they're pretty uh they're pretty nimble when they're running around <laughs> for sure well andrea this has been a pleasure as always a uh, merry christmas to you and to you too have a great day okay you too bye-bye bye-bye we're over to for a break for the news uh, but uh that's so fascinating thank you so much uh andrea o'brien we'll be back right after this we have lines open now's your chance to give us a call Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. And we are back. Uh, going to the calls now. And uh, Sean Wiseman is on the air. Hello, Sean. 
Hello, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good, thank you. I uh, just calling um, to uh, um, make people aware if they're not already. I have a fundraiser here tonight in Gander at uh, St. Martin's Church. Uh, it's myself and uh, all of my students. Uh, we're doing a, a Christmas show, traditional Christmas songs, carols, and uh, all the proceeds are going to um, uh, the Anglican uh, outreach that uh, drills water wells in Africa. So it looks like right now we're going to have enough um, to drill a full well, which is, uh, I think, $2,500 or 25 and change to, uh, to drill a well, which uh, supplies a full village. So really pleased about that. Something to do really nice for Christmas. Absolutely. Uh, so it's a, a traditional Christmas concert, I take it? Yes. We're going to be doing everything from uh, the first Noel to Frosty Gina Bells or whatever, you know. So it's, yeah, it's it's more of the, the older time. You know, there's not, not much of the modern songs, but it's, it's more of the classic Christmas carols and, and songs, you know. And you say and, your uh, students, what uh, ages are we talking about? We're talking about from about 8 to... 18, roughly. Uh, they're mandolin, guitar, bass, voice, ukulele. Uh, I teach all of it. So there's there's various ones. Um, in you know, there's I got a lot of mostly guitar students and voice students, and there's a few mandolin and, and ukulele and bass. Uh, but it, it all comes together, and and it makes for a good show. I've been doing this now for for quite a few years. I usually do a a Christmas uh, concert and a, a spring concert in, in June with my uh, students for, for the year end, you know. Bit of nerves? Pardon me? A bit of nerves for the kids? Yeah, there's always, you know, uh, we usually get uh, between two and 300 people at the shows. And then it's, you know, some of them is, you know, the one's been at it for a while. It's a great thing for the kids because it kind of prepares them for for life and you know many jobs you got to be you know maybe doing a powerpoint presentation or whatever so it, it you know it prepares them for being in front of an audience and uh, by the time they do a couple of concerts they're, they're pretty good they're not most of them aren't too nervous at all you know so it's uh, it, it's really good first timers are usually <laughs> pretty nervous but they kind of blend in with everybody else and it, it works out well and anybody who's ever uh, been to gander knows that saint martin's is quite the space Yes, it's it's a big church. It holds about uh, I think close to five hundred. So it's yeah, it's it's a, it's a big uh, it's a big church indeed, and it's uh, it's got great acoustics for for this show in particular. It's it's really nice. Like so, with with, uh, with two to three hundred people in there, the acoustics are just right. You know, it's a high ceiling, so you get the sound carries, and yet it's not too it's not like a gymnasium echoey or anything. So a lot of churches are like that. I find actually got they get really good acoustics. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Some yeah. people uh, thrive uh, in uh, that kind of a per performance space. So uh, tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this program, these, um, this program to dig water wells in Africa. So yeah, the uh, I I should know the name of it, but I forget. It's it's a uh, it's an outreach from the Anglican Church of Canada, and they they uh, the cost is actually quite amazing. Apparently, with the water wells, uh, it depends on how deep you go. Because I, I know there's uh, other outreaches that uh, the cost is a bit heftier, but I think they must go deeper to get to be able to get the water. But uh, they've managed to do it here, and the, the money is direct. There's no middleman that goes right 
right to through through the um, organization and directly to Africa, and they've they've got the cost down roughly to about twenty five hundred dollars. So, which is phenomenal uh, to to get a well drilled, and these wells are. Um, they'll they'll supply you know like the surrounding area like it's a remote area that has some villages uh, you know within walking distance which <laughs> some of them walk pretty far for water we take water for granted but uh, I've often thought about you know it's, it's amazing it must be the worst thing I, I don't know if most people in America in North America have experienced being really really thirsty. And it, you know, we we we. Oh, I'm really parched in the summer, but you know, you're usually no time you get yourself a, a glass of water or a bottle of water or whatever. But to be you know, all the time having no water to drink, only contaminated water, it must be just absolutely horrible. You know, because I mean, you can go without food for days, but you don't go uh, very long without water before you become severely dehydrated. So, these programs are um, pretty amazing. Um, to uh, to sustain life in some of these areas uh, because uh, many times that's how a lot of the uh, people um, uh, succumb to you know to uh, they end up dying because they they just don't have clean water they they drink and they're drinking from contaminated areas and uh, get sick and die so it's uh, it's 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 a matter of life and death for some of these remote areas. So it's uh, yeah, I'm pretty pleased to be a part of it. It's it's wonderful. Last year we did uh, well. It, last year was the first time we did a concert since 2019, of course, because of COVID. Um, but last year we ended up, I think we took in over 3,000 uh, by the time it all settled uh, in in that concert, and roughly about the same thing uh, in the spring when we did our spring concert. So. We've already done enough for two wells in the last year, and, we're, and like I said, tonight looks like it's going to be um, we're going to have enough to drill another well. That's fantastic. So, uh, so um, when and where and how can people contribute? Well, uh, the tickets have been on sale at the Bread Box and Computer Shack here in town. Um, it's fifteen dollars in advance or twenty dollars at the door. Uh, the doors open at six thirty uh, tonight in St. Martin's Church. And the concert will start sharp at 7. So uh, if you don't get a chance to get your tickets, you can certainly, uh, it is a bit cheaper in advance, but if you can certainly make the concert tonight, it's $20 at the door. And, and all proceeds, as I mentioned, go toward, uh, go toward drilling this water well. Sean Wiseman, I appreciate your time and all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Same to you. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back uh, right after this. And we are back. We're going to go now to the mayor of Channel Portabasque. Hello, Brian Button. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm not bad this morning. Yourself? Good, good. So definitely a green Christmas in Channel Portabasque. Thus far, uh, looking at the forecast, though, that's subject to change. <laughs> Is that right? So uh, some snow possibility possibly coming? Well, it's saying that on the other side of this, uh, I guess, this rain event and stuff, that there's supposed to be uh, some snowfall. So we may see a white Christmas after all. And I guess snow at this stage would be uh, welcome after all the rain you've had. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we've had a, a, a bit of rain, uh, but, you know, nothing like we've, uh, I guess, 
seen in the forecast, I mean, we were on pretty much on edge out here of wondering what we were going to get. Uh, we've had rain off and on. Uh, it's been, you know, like here right now, it's not raining. It's not a not a big lot of wind. It's a little bit of drizzle here and stuff. But probably about 10, 15 minutes ago, we might have had a, a big downpour, and then it seems to stop. So when the rains are like that, it's uh, it allows our systems at least to, to empty out, we'll say. For sure, and I guess the the ground itself is absorbing it a bit because the, it's not frozen yet. Yeah, and that's I guess a, a bonus with this uh, type of weather that we're not into freezing temperatures yet, and and the uh, the ground is able to absorb uh, some of the the water that's coming down. But uh, you know, it's when you see these type of forecasts, uh, you know, they do give you uh, a, a fair bit of anxiety of uh, what to expect. For sure, uh, because I think the uh, original forecasts and estimates were in, somewhere in the 400 millimeters uh, range over the course of a couple of days. Yeah, uh, you know we we're uh, you know we're no uh, stranger to rain and heavy rains. It seems like every time we have rain these days, it's always in the the high amounts and. Uh, and we have to contend with that. We're only a couple of years away from uh, when the roads all washed out out here. We had four major washouts uh, with a heavy rainstorm at that time. So when you're hearing 400 millimeters and knowing what it did in the past with uh, the 300 millimeter hit, you'll say, uh, it gives you a lot of worry. And uh, for people here in town, I think it was a little bit of a deja vu. Uh, last year in Christmas, we had another major uh, rainstorm, a weather event on Christmas Eve, actually, and it went into Christmas Day where we had our crews out uh, helping residents that were experiencing flooding in their homes and those type things. So, you know, with Fiona just still, you know, still in the memories and still in, the, you know, it's pretty sharp in the memories and we're still dealing with the after effects of that. Uh, people are more in tune when we hear about weather and stuff. Uh, it does cause a fair bit of stress for a, for a lot of people, me included. For sure. Uh, I mean, uh, everybody in that region must be, I don't know, for want of a better term, you know, feeling <clears throat> like almost a PTSD, if you will. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that that's for sure. Uh, I know myself, one time you take a look at the forecast and stuff and you give it the attention that it requires, of course, and, and do the things that you need to do from a municipality side of things. But you always had that, well, okay, well, you know, we'll weather through that. But when you see it now and you open it up or you get that message from the emergency center in the province and said, you know, you need to take some caution on this and that, it gives that anxiety of, uh, you know, my God, here we go again, right? Uh, you're thinking about the residents there because a lot of our residents in our communities uh, and, and my neighboring communities around me, you know, they've they've gone through a lot over the last uh, the last year or so, and it's been, uh, you know, seeing uh, the weather events and stuff causes a lot of stress and. The mental health aspect of this uh, storm of Fiona, we tend to talk about all the destruction and all the things that went on during that and what happens during flooding and so on and so forth. But it's having a mental impact on a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it's it's almost, uh, if there's a, a better word to use, it's almost tiresome at times when you're hearing about the forecast because it's uh, it's something that you're saying, not again, right? 
Uh, for sure. And I mean, a big uh, part of the um, uh, ec- economic benefits that uh, are felt in, in Port of Bass come from Marine Atlantic. And that uh, system has been shut down over the last few days. Any word on uh, when ferry service will resume? No, I thought I seen a notice this morning that it may uh, go out today in the morning thing. I'm not 100% sure of that. Uh, didn't uh, I just happened to see a, a notice and just reading through some stuff here this morning. But, uh, you know, when that stuff happens, it affects uh, all the province and uh, it affects everything. And there's no good time. Uh, but, you know, when it's happening during the Christmas season, a lot of people traveling and so on and so forth. You know, it it becomes another uh, stress for people, and uh, that they have to deal with, and realtor, re, uh, you know, stores and stuff, you know, and and grocery stores, they have to to real, you know, deal with the shortages and so on and so forth. But you know, it's it's out of everyone's hands when this happens. And like I said, it's uh, when you see the seas that are out there, you know, you're not going to have ships going back and forth. And so hopefully, it gets back to gets back going so that both the uh, people can try get back to traveling and and uh, we can see some freight moving and and those type things but you know uh, this one didn't have the impact that you know we were seeing in the forecast which is a great thing i'm always this thing that i say to people when it comes up is you know we prepare the best we can we do all the precautions we send out all the notices we we try to be proactive just in case things happen and uh, those type things but we're always happy when it's on the other end as well that it wasn't quite so bad or it's not going so bad so that's a good thing and how's the town now preparing for uh, the holidays well, you know, we're uh, we had our crews were uh, you know we were all of our crews were out preparing uh, you know for the season. Of course, with the winter season coming, and and then when these storms are happening, we're out doing uh, extra checks and stuff. You know, and since uh, since we had Fiona, you know, we've taken some different measures here in town. We have a a new text messaging system that we send out notices. We have a a new on-call emergency uh, line that in the after hours that people can avail of and those different things that we do now and just trying to have our crews on standby once we do hear about things. So these are the things that we do and hopefully during the the season nobody won't need us and they won't need the crews. But if they do, uh, we want to be prepared and be ready to go out. The only thing about that is, you know, like I always tell people is that we only have so many resources, so many crews, and if we do have to respond to uh, a number of calls, it's, uh, you know, we try to do them in the order that we get them, and uh, we may be a little bit before we get there, but we will come. So, Mayor Brian Button, I really appreciate your time uh, this morning. Uh, thankfully, uh, the town has weathered this uh, latest deluge uh, with, um, with uh, very few problems. Thank you so much. Well, Linda, I really appreciate it. And I just want to say to all of our residents and uh, you guys at the OCM and everyone uh, listening and all the support that comes from all over the province. I had a lot of people even call when they, we get a lot of calls from different municipalities when we hear, when the forecast comes up. And I receive a lot of messages from other communities and stuff and say, hopefully you guys fare out well. I want to wish each and every one of them a Merry Christmas and uh, a lot of thanks from our communities for reaching out and thinking of the people on the uh, Southwest coast here. Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, when we come back, we're going to speak with Charlie and we hope to speak with you.
Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. We're going now to Charlie. You're on the air. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Good morning, uh, Linda, and a Merry Christmas to you. Same to you. Before I get to my uh, uh, thing about healing, and uh, it's Christmas, I think it's an appropriate uh, topic. I, wa- I want to just say a couple of words to, to your previous callers. Uh, John Wiseman, I think his name was, about drilling wells? Sean, yes, yeah. Sean, I'm sorry. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to compliment them on, on, on that. Uh, one, of, one of the reasons for, we're, we're getting so, much, uh, so many immigrants in that leaving Africa is because of drinking water, the, the scarcity of it, and clean water. And uh, a lot of people don't make the connection, but because of our lifestyle in the West and other rich nations, developed nations, we've created the uh, problem. Uh, the drought and so on comes directly from uh, our activity with, uh, with, with our industries, greenhouse gases and so on. And uh, I would say that... Uh, it's great that we're helping them, and uh, we should we should remember we we really owe it to these countries to uh, to help them through through these crises, you know. And um, just just a couple of stats I read there re- regarding our activity on the planet. In 1950, it was estimated that we uh, produced over six billion tons of GHCs, greenhouse gases. In 1990. It went from six to 22 billion tons, and that's when we started the Kyoto Conference and uh, talking about doing something about it, which has been kind of a joke because in 2022, it was up to 36.8 from 22 in 1990, and this recent conference shows that uh, we've been unsuccessful, and I don't think we will be, so... Listening to Brian Button, I would urge people that, that live in areas that are uh, uh, threatened, uh, r- rivers, near rivers, the oceans and so on, uh, prepare yourselves. You haven't seen it uh, all yet, but anyway. Uh, you want to comment, Linda, before I go No, on you story? go right ahead. Okay. Do you remember years ago... Uh, when we were young, I don't, I don't know, it probably wouldn't apply to you, I'm a lot older than you. We used to have uh, warts. A lot of people had warts on their hands, and you'd go to somebody and they would uh, take away the warts. Does that ring a bell with you at all? I've known of and heard about uh, people who would charm away warts, yeah. Yes, charm was the word. And, and it worked. Whether, whether people believed it or not, uh, or, or still believe it, it it's definitely, I, I, I saw instances of it myself. Anyway, my anecdote is this regarding faith and healing. Uh, I went to sleep one time under a sun lamp back back in the uh, 70s. And uh, when I woke, one side of my face was completely uh, burned. And uh, you can imagine uh, going to school the next day looking like a lobster on one side and uh, the other side white. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I read soon after that that... Uh, that can cause effects down the road, skin cancer and so on. Sure enough, uh, over two decades later, I started to develop spots on that side of my face that it was burned. Uh, I eventually had to go to St. John's to get uh, one or two of them cut out. 
They kept coming back. I uh, went to another doctor. He burned off uh, some of the spots. This was going on over the years now. This wasn't a short amount of time. And after about two years, uh, they that came back. So um, one day I was at the table, and uh, my wife said, uh, that spot by the side of your of, of, of your eye is, is getting bigger uh, every week, and uh, it was. Uh, so we agreed uh, we have to go maybe to a dermatologist. So I thought to myself, some of the readings I've done about things, Reiki and so on. So for two weeks, I put my hand to my face two or three times a day, and I said, I gave this chant. My body is healthy, my mind is healthy, my face, skin is healthy, my body, mind, spirit is whole. So that was the chant. Within less than a week, we were at the table and, and my wife said, that spot is a lot smaller. I didn't say anything, I kind of grinned. Within another week, it was totally gone. I haven't had it back since, and that's been about five, six years. Now, that wasn't going to go away by itself. That was growing. I had it burned off, as you know, and cut off and so on, and uh, that happened. So as a result of that, I started to read up on faith healing and all that stuff, and I realized that uh, I, I, I wasn't alone in this. This happens all the time. The, the literature is filled with it of healings done by by uh, different people and people healing themselves. So uh, I'll, I'll say the chant one more time in case anybody wanted to use it. Uh, my body is healthy, my mind is healthy, my skin, I put put my hand to, to the spot, my, my skin is healthy, my body, mind, spirit is whole. And uh, there was no way it was a coincidence because this had been going on for decades, right? Anyway, you want to comment on that? <laughs> no, that, that's uh, fine. Um, um, you know, whatever it was that you found there helped, I suppose, to focus your healing. Um, so, um, you know, I'm not advocating that uh, people ignore uh, the medical process either. But, um, you know, there are different ways and means uh, for people to be, I guess, holistically well. Yes, that's a good point. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that either. But I'm saying this worked for me, and it's worked for for, for literally uh, uh, millions of, of others in different forms. I will say this about science. Science is very good. I, I, it's, it's one of the, the things uh, in my background. Science knows very little about parapsychology and uh, what happens there. Uh, again, the literature filled with this, but no explanations for it. They know very little about uh, UAPs, unidentified objects. They're into quantum physics. They know very little about how that works. They know they know it works. They can put applications in in uh, machines, in uh, your cell phone, your things like that. But they have no clue what's happening behind the scenes, we, uh, on the micro level. So there's a lot of things science is just not up on, and uh, they can't put it in the lab and study it. And that's a weakness of science, but uh, uh, I feel they should spend more time on these things. But anyway, uh, just to comment on that, too. Charlie, I appreciate your time. Merry Christmas to you. Yes, Merry Christmas to you, Linda. Thanks very much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And we're going to go now to the Executive Director for Connections for Seniors, Mohammed Abdullah. Hello, Mohammed. Hi. How are, you, how are you today? 
Good, good. Good morning. Good morning. So you had uh, a fairly substantial um, funding announcement yesterday. Tell us what this money will mean for what you do. Um, so we are relatively a young organization, six years old. Um, a lot of the programs that we established um, uh, was trying to gather small funding together or trying to uh, compensate with some of the positions and people having multiple roles and, of course, having a wonderful team that step up and do the work for the community helped a lot throughout the, the couple of years, uh, the last couple of years, specifically since COVID. But uh, those, those, uh, those roles need to be expanded and those programs need to be self-sufficient in a way that uh, we can support the number of seniors coming through our doors. Um, the, uh, some of the programs have, have uh, grew uh, demand-wise, uh, about 60 to 70 percent, and some others have grown uh, like 200 uh, percent. We are seeing like uh, from the community, especially when it comes to food, transportation, uh, health support, housing, uh, on the top of that list, of course. Um, we have a waiting list, which we never did until uh, this year. Um, we started to have a waiting list in the last couple of years more um, than we ever saw before. So that funding will help us to tackle those problems and think about them more in a way that we can be more self-sufficient and sustainable. So one of the big roles on that program will be uh, a manager for social enterprise, which will look into how can we monetize in some of the programs in order to fund other programs, um, hopefully again in the next 10 years that we don't need to be asking for uh, for money every year to keep those programs go going. You mentioned that Connections for Seniors is a relatively new group, six years. Um, so how was it formed? What uh, what was the idea behind it? So uh, six years ago, I worked uh, as a shelter manager in one of the community organizations in town, um, worked with seniors uh, and uh, there was always around the table a saying of we don't have those solutions for seniors. Uh, I approached my colleague, Amanda, uh, she was a social worker, uh, working with the community program, and um, said, we have been thinking about that for a while, would you like to join? She said, sure, and we started working on it. We were two volunteers for about six months, and uh, here we are today, 40 staff uh, on the route to be about uh, 60 or 70 in the new year. Amazing. So how many people do you, um, you know, help on a regular basis? Um, every program um, count their need, their, their support separately uh, to be more transparent. But um, overall, we have we have surpassed the 2,500 uh, like unique individual over the last uh, uh, three to four years. Uh, that was our last uh, count uh, in August of this year. So we're talking roughly about 2,500, and we don't we don't like check out or um, um, let people like go <laughs> uh, throughout our programs. We keep supporting them. Uh, there's no um, discharge plan. There's usually an ongoing support, so people can call if they need help with food hampers, meals coming soon. Uh, again. Um, and uh, transportation for medical appointment, housing-related appointments, uh, financial support, going to the bank, paying rent, um, and health appointments as well. So 
um, there's a lot that can happen once in a while, and there's a lot that, can, that always that happen day to day. So some clients we have are we see almost every week, sometimes every day, and some other clients we support month to month and sometimes year to year. So how do you connect with people, or how do people connect with you? Um, there's multiple ways. So we get referrals from all sort of ways. So we we are working with over 45 uh, organizations and government department and MHAs. We get phone calls through them all the time. Family can uh, refer their uh, loved ones sometimes. Uh, people do self-referrals. Uh, there's organizations that uh, are doing great work in the community, like, for example, Seniors NL. Um, when seniors reach out to them, they, they refer them to us. Uh, so we can we can help and support. Um, there's there's all sorts of ways that we can uh, we can support um, older adults. There's there's no one way. If we get somebody, reach out through our website. Sometimes people can send uh, anonymous uh, email saying uh, someone needs help. This is the name. This is the number. Can you please reach out? We will reach out and make sure that this is uh, someone that needs help. And if they do, we will. Uh, we will still support the person. Uh, so again, it's all sort of ways. There's no one way or another. Uh, our phone number is online, and uh, just for the whoever's listening to us, it's six nine nine triple zero six. Anybody can uh, can call us at any time, and we'll be more than happy to support and help. And is it primarily the metro region, or do you have a network across the province? So uh, most of our hands-on programs, we do it in the northeast uh, Avalon area. Um, but uh, we can support with minimal things such as like food hampers and, and grocery shopping uh, across the province. Um, as we have some businesses that can like support us in the community, uh, we can make phone calls to the local grocery shop and ask for like a food hamper to be put together and then help help the senior whether pick it up or we can deliver it through a taxi uh, to their home. Uh, which what we do here in town through volunteers. So a lot of our hampers are delivered through volunteers that we can't thank uh, enough for the work that they are doing with us. So this funding will uh, go a long way, I suppose, in uh, helping to uh, support the community. Yeah, it will lift a lot of the stress. Um, a lot of the a lot of the stress happening now is because of those four um, main issues: uh, food, housing, health, and financial. And I think we're tackling big, too big part of them to lift some of the weight off the financial burden. Uh, so we're helping out with the um, with the food uh, supplies and having that support in place is very important. A lot of seniors have to choose between medication and food sometimes, and the rent and food sometimes. So having that in place can support them, uh, even as simple as um, driving uh, them to the grocery shop to, to pick up some food or pick it up for them. Uh, also, an important piece to our transportation program, uh, we're trying not to leave anybody behind and to fill all the gaps. So the new van that we just purchased, uh, we're supposed to hopefully receive it in the next couple of weeks, uh, will be accessible, wheelchair accessible. So that's a that's a big uh, like inclusive step that we wanted to do for a long time. So now, any senior that really reach out to us will be more than happy to pick them up and uh, support them equally uh, without any barriers. For sure, uh, Mohammed, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All the best Happy to holidays. you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Mohammed Abdullah is the uh, Executive Director of Connections for Seniors. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. We have some lines open. Now is your chance to give us a call. <laughs> 
And we are back on VOCM Open Line. And, of course, in the next uh, hour or so, uh, uh, schools will be closing for the holiday break. And uh, kids very excited, of course, uh, heading into the holidays. So uh, they're going to be out and around. And um, if we get any snow, they'll be uh, out recreating in uh, on the snowbanks and stuff like that. So just be aware over the holiday season. um, And uh, kids going to be trying out all their new stuff uh, so uh, please be aware of that and um, let's make sure that this uh, holiday break is a safe one and as uh, Mayor Brian Button indicated uh, we're going to see uh, a bit of a turn in the weather in the next little while we've seen some unseasonably warm temperatures over the last uh, few days but uh, the temperatures are going to start to plummet again and uh, some of the rain that uh, big parts of the province have been seeing over the last little while is is going to become snow and ice pellets so that means it's going to be dirty on the road so uh, this is a very busy time of year when people are traveling trying to get back and forth uh, uh, it, both in preparation for the holidays and to spend time with loved ones so uh, please be aware of um, you know any impediments to travel over the next coming days and uh, VOCM News will keep you on top of all of that uh, you can rest assured uh, just uh, keep your ear near as they say so um, uh, we had a couple of calls coming in and uh, now the lines are open so if you have anything uh, to say or anything that you want to uh, contribute to the show by all means do so Uh, trying ever so hard to stay clear of you know all the the dark stories that are out there but the proliferation is just uh, unbelievable trying to stay on the um, positive side of things but still very many um, serious stories that uh, are keeping um, uh, people's minds uh, I guess engaged Um this story out of the United States and we've seen uh, just this explosion in AI in uh, recent years Um, artificial intelligence that is um, you know content and uh, ideas and um, data that is being uh, produced by a computer and decisions that are being made uh, by a computer or an algorithm. Uh, But um, concerns being raised about uh, some of the possibilities here, especially with the... um, I guess, a gap in uh, legislation governing these types of technologies uh, hidden inside the foundation of popular artificial intelligence image generators. And a lot of people use these things, you know, just for kicks, um, are thousands of images of child sexual abuse, according to a new report that urges companies to take action to address a harmful flaw in the technology they built. Those same images have been Uh, made it easier for AI systems to produce realistic and explicit imagery of fake children as well as transform social media photos of fully clothed real teens into nudes, much to the alarm of schools and law enforcement around the world. And of course, we saw this recent case uh, that occurred in Winnipeg. Very troubling indeed. The Stanford Internet Observatory found more than 3,200 images of suspected child sexual abuse in a database used to train 
15 leading AI image makers. Uh, very troubling indeed. Well, um, we are going to go now to the president of the National <laughs> uh, Association of Public and Private Employees, Jerry Earl. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Linda. How are you? I'm good. So the uh, ministers, Hogan and Abbott, held a news conference just a short while ago about this reissue of a request for qualifications for HMP. What does this mean? What it means, uh, right, Linda, unfortunately, is another delay. Uh, some of us will remember going back to a report that was commissioned way back, talking about decades of darkness, and still, unfortunately, our correctional staff uh, at HMP is still in the dark, basically. Uh, so concerning, uh, the positive, I guess, that, yeah, at some point in time we'll proceed, but you got to remember in 2019 on the shores of Kitty Lake, an initial announcement was made by Minister Parsons and Crocker at that time. Uh, we had personally intended at that time, and thought today would be talking about a, a ribbon cut in, not another request. So uh, it's an ending positive, and put another request out to proceed, but I can only imagine uh, how our staff that work in that facility, those that we represent and others there, uh, how they must feel today. I was going to say it must have taken the wind out of their sails because I think a, a lot of people were feeling very hopeful that, uh, you know, a new facility would be coming soon. Yeah, and, and I think the correctional staff there, whatever our officers classification, health care, they're so used to being disappointed that probably won't come as a shock room. It's probably just going to roll off the shoulders today and say, here we go again. Uh, we're not a priority like others in this province. Uh, these st The staff that work there do incredible work, and, and I've said before, an incredible working environment. Most wouldn't even venture to work in this type of environment environment that they work in from the physical infrastructure there. So absolutely concerning. I can only imagine how the officers feel today, but knowing most of the officers there, they'd probably say, yeah, here we go again. Uh, we've been promised so many times now. And the only time they'll actually believe there's a new facility, when somebody opens the front gate of a new facility somewhere down the road. So here we are now looking at the possibility of uh, temporary outbuildings uh, being used to help increase uh, the space there and, and programming. Uh, what will that mean? I'm certainly not a security expert, and again, we'll have to talk to our correctional officers there, but when you talk about putting in outbuildings, and I'm not sure what type of outbuildings they'll be talking about, uh, that takes staff, and as you know, there's a resource issue there, uh, what type of security be required with those facilities, what are these buildings being used for, uh, the infrastructure down there that sits on the side of Kittivity Lake right now is crumbling daily, all kinds of issues. Uh, yes, we've had a working group with government the past summer, and I applaud, actually, uh, the minister and the working group that's been here trying to say, what can we do uh, to hold this piece placed together uh, in the interim? Because we thought a facility we started with. you got to remember, we had a re uh, RFQ done back in, I believe, 2020. Here we are talking about an RFQ, and this is a two-stage process, because you do an RFQ, then you go to a request for proposals uh, after that. So getting concrete timeline. So the one
one thing we will have is a lot of questions. So we will be looking for yet another meeting uh, with the two ministers, Minister Abbott and Minister Ogan, to set that never conversation. Uh, you're also aware, and your listeners, like the, the experts that we rely on, the frontline people that work in this facility and other corrections across the province for some time. Actually, we commissioned a report that was presented. Believe it or not, Linda, we, there was never a meeting to even talk about it. So we're certainly going to want to go back now and have a conversation. What is this facility now to talk about? Because they're talking about changes. Uh, we don't want to see changes that's going to negatively affect those that work there and ensure the safety and security of our staff and, and the environment, again, for the people that are housed the inmates. But our members, again, uh, I'm sure are feeling uh, like a forgotten group in Newfoundland, Labrador. We see all kinds of infrastructure built in uh, much more timely fashion than this facility. And I know, again, people roll their eyes about what the inmates expect there. I'm talking about the people that work there. They deserve better than the situation. And, and like I said, I have no idea what these outbuildings are talking about. But we will talk to our experts, which is the frontline officers there in this case, uh, see what they think of it uh, and how that can impact the operations. Because there's things that need to be done in that building. And yes, there's things they're trying to repair and place, but that can only be done so long because we keep hearing pretty well on a daily basis now of issues in that existing facility. Jerry Earl, we're up to news time. Are you willing to, um, you know, hang in there till after news and uh, I'll ask you a few more questions? Absolutely will, Linda. All right, great. I'll put you back on hold and uh, we will uh, head to news now with Brian Medor. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we are back and uh, going back to uh, Nate President Jerry Earl, who is on the line. And uh, we're talking about uh, this announcement made just a short while ago regarding um, HMP and the provincial government's uh, reissue of a request for qualifications for replacement of that uh, facility. And uh, Jerry Earl indicating that um, this represents another delay. Are there concerns, Jerry, that the, any further delay in replacing this facility could have an impact? impact on recruitment of correctional officers? I believe it does have an impact when you're trying to recruit uh, people to come work in any of our correctional facilities and specifically uh, with the HMP. Uh, it does because people will look at the environment they're working in, the ear and the stories about uh, what our staff are facing down there, the physical and mental injuries they're enduring because of that. Uh, so, yeah, I believe it does have an impact on the ability to recruit. And not only recruit, more important when we have people there uh, retaining them because we continuously have people uh, that leave this occupation. And when you talk to them, a big part of it is the environment that they work in. So this is a workplace issue for you. It's a, it's a big workplace issue, Linda. There is nobody in Newfoundland and Labrador would go to work every day in a facility that is equivalent to the HMP, and government after government, minister after minister, have failed to address this. Like I said, going back to the decades of darkness, this, this is not something new. We go back to reports that were done back uh, with a previous minister, I'm going back to Jerome Kennedy's days, uh, when there was uh, reports talking about the replacement of 
to HMP back then. Here we are today talking about issuing a request for qualifications that was already done some years ago. And I even question why announced today when it's not even going to be available until in 2024. So they've announced the request for qualifications today. But we're not even going to see the request until, and I know it's only a couple of weeks away next year, but that's only the first phase. So what you'll listen on is realize that's a request for qualifications. Then we have to do a request for proposals. We've been through all of that. Uh, and here we go again. Uh, I listen in the courts daily, and I'm sure, and you've reported, Linda, like many times, uh, how inmates or people that are supposed to be placed in this correctional facility, that their sentence are lessened, or in some cases they don't even get a sentence there. Uh, well, guess what? Our officers that work there and other correctional staff, their sentence is not getting changed. Uh, they have to continue to work in this deplorable place. And even we don't know what it means now by, because, again, no consultation. What, what does it mean by outbuildings? Uh, we're already having difficulty with the current infrastructure there uh, and staff. And we're talking about increased sentences. Our officers are expected to work more than we are outcry and we actually talk on behalf of health care workers but our correctional officers they are putting in unbelievable hours to keep this place operational and the inmates there safe uh, and it's un unbelievable like I can't imagine how those officers live, but knowing them they're basically saying here we go again and they'll just go on and do their job professionally in the best with the tools that they have to the best of their ability as they have now for a very long period of time. So I'm sure to deflate today because I think I said in the beginning we should be here today talking about the opening of a new facility that was actually announced way back in 2019. And he announced before that, that was the last announcement in 2019 actually. So here we are on the cusp of 2024 and uh, we're no further ahead than we were when I started in this business and there were conversations being had in the late 1980s about replacement of HMP. So what do you suppose is behind this, I don't know, is it a refusal to uh, put, I mean, obviously replacement of such a facility is going to be a costly venture. That's a given. But is it not a priority? I don't think it ever was a priority for any previous administration or this administration, if they be honest. Uh, it doesn't score on political points as building a school like they are in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, uh, where it's about to be a by-election. It doesn't score on political points as if they're paving a road or buying a new ferry. But the bottom line, the staff that work there, they deserve to have a facility that is safe, where it's not causing them ill to be, whether it be mentally or physically. And yes, people that are incarcerated there, we expect people that go into our, our correctional facilities, because they are correctional facilities, that they would be able to get programming that would put them back in the community, hopefully, some of them better than they went in, because people are going in because of mental health issues and addictions issues. There's some, I'll be honest, we will probably never change. But again, that's what correctional officers, because that's the terms, all the staff that work there is supposed to have an environment where they can hopefully rehabilitate people, but the environment down there at the current facility uh, is not conducive to work in, it's not healthy to work in, and for those that are incarcerated there, uh, we're in people, as recent as the last few days, where people should have probably been incarcerated, but the judge is actually saying it's not fit to be incarcerated there, 
what has anybody talked about the people other than the officers and their union, the people that work there? Their sentence, like I just said, is not getting reduced. They have to work entire careers there. And think about how much, uh, you know, systems and attitudes have changed uh, even in the last five years, let alone since 1865. Absolutely, Lynn. Like you said, going way back, this keeps getting talked about. And uh, unfortunately, the staff that work there, the offices, healthcare workers, classification officers, and the management, they're almost immune to this now. And like, like I said, they probably shrugged their shoulders today and said, here we go again, but buckle down and do the necessary work uh, for, them, for the benefit of those that are incarcerated and for their co-workers. And that's I'm extremely unfortunate because they deserve better. This should not be about uh, what's best p- for political points or otherwise. This should be about the right thing. And yes, being fiscally responsible, would have been fiscally responsible to build this time with this facility would have been much more cost effective. It is the delays of government after government that's escalating the cost. Because if you would have built a house five years ago, it would have been cheaper than building it today. Like we went through that era. NAEP, we know we had to replace some infrastructure five years ago, and we're replacing one as we speak. It's costing us more. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It was going to cost us more. So we're going back to the drawing board now, and that's exactly what we're doing, and trying to figure out now, because we need to get a meeting now and figure out, because we don't, well, request for qualifications, we don't even have access to it until 2024, and we will meet with our experts, which is the people that work in this facility. They've presented all kinds of ideas. Will their ideas be even incorporated? Because this is created more questions and answers. Uh, if there's anything positive, it's still under radar and the government is committing to it and the minister seems sincere in committing to it. But I think some, uh, I forget how many ministers this is that I've even dealt with since I've been in this capacity. This is either the third or fourth minister. Uh, so, but the current minister seems sincere in getting this addressed. Uh, so we will be seeking a meeting uh, to see and we want some concrete answers that these officers and the staff and the management there absolutely deserve. Nate, President Jerry Earl, I do appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Linda. And at this moment, just in case not before, to you and all your listening audience, uh, have the best Christmas possible. Same to you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on what he's had to say, by all means, do give us a call. We have lines open. Now is your chance to give us a call. We were talking about Christmas uh, traditions here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and one of them is the visiting tradition known as mumming or mummering or jannying. Um, anyway, um, one, um, I guess, ubiquitous symbol of uh, Christmas across North America and uh, large chunks of Europe, of course, is the beautiful poinsettia. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, synonymous with uh, Christmas trees and the like, and they're so beautiful. You often see them on display at uh, various uh, churches and group meetings and these kinds of things, uh, just uh, gorgeous. Uh, But nearly 200 years after the plant with the bright crimson leaves and, of course, the red red parts of the poinsettia or white, depending on the plant you get, or pink, um, are actually leaves. They're not not petals. 
200 years after the plant with the bright crimson leaves was introduced north of the Rio Grande, attention once again turning to the poinsettia's origins and the checkered history of its namesake. The name poinsettia comes from the amateur botanist and statesman Joel Roberts Poinsett, who happened upon the plant during his tenure as the first U.S. minister to a newly independent Mexico. So the plant, of course, originates from Mexico. Uh, Year-end holiday markets in Latin America brim with the potted plant known in Spanish as the flower of Christmas Eve. And uh, although it is beautiful, it's also of great concern to pet owners uh, because if your pet likes to chew on greenery or in this case uh, red leaves, um, then uh, you could end up at the uh, local vet clinic (laughs) with uh, little haste um, uh, because uh, it is uh, highly um, toxic to uh, many animals. So there you go. Uh, The poinsettia. Um, Beautiful. I I love them this time of year. Absolutely. Uh, We mentioned this off the top of the show and uh, haven't had much in the way of uh, bites on it, but it it, uh, has to do with health care priorities and, of course, the uh, federal government now trying to hammer out a a national drug plan or pharmacare plan, uh, which has been a priority for government, especially under the the coalition government with the NDP for uh, some time now. But uh, a recent Leger poll suggests that it is not among the key priorities of many Canadians when it comes to health Healthcare. Only 18% of respondents think that government should prioritize creating a new universal single-payer drug plan. 36%, however, want to see more funding to lower surgical wait times. And, of course, anybody who has been on those uh, lengthy uh, wait lists uh, knows what we're talking about. The provincial government has, for some time now, tried to introduce a number of measures to try and knock back some uh, wait times because there are uh, provincial standards Um, and um, uh, they've used a number of um, you know um, lesser used I suppose uh, surgical clinics in places like Carbonier and uh, they're looking at Clarenville and Central Newfoundland and uh, they've been doing it in St. Anthony to try and knock back uh, some of those wait times Um, so um, we We've seen some progress there. Uh, 32% want money spent on building more long-term care homes. And uh, 30% want expanded mental health services. So those are the priorities of Canadians who responded to a recent Leger poll. Um, VOCM's Richard Duggan is, uh, was at this uh, news conference called today by uh, Ministers Abbott and Hogan in regard to this uh, reissue of a request for qualifications for the replacement of HMP, um, something that uh, represents, in um, uh, according to Nate President 
Jerry Earl another delay. Um, but uh, the provincial government has reissued this call uh, because, in part, of uh, the cost of construction materials, which have increased by 200 to 300% since the original uh, call for qualifications went out in 2020. Now, it doesn't explain why we haven't seen any real progress since 2020. This is, after all, almost 2024. Uh, we're hoping to hear from uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan, who tells me he is uh, ready to come on any moment to tell us what the ministers had to say in regards to that. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, reaching out to him now to ask him to give us a call um, and uh, give us an update on what uh, transpired there this morning. But uh, in the interim, the provincial government will be implementing temporary enhancements until Her Majesty's Penitentiary is replaced. And among those um, uh, temporary enhancements are uh, the possibility of some temporary outbuildings, uh, which are considered to increase space for accommodations, services, and programming, which will help improve the experience of staff and inmates. Uh, so um, we'll find out exactly what that all means. Information on the RFQ will be available the first week of January. The deadline for receiving proposals is February 16th, after which time qualified bid teams will be invited to respond to a request for proposals stating project requirements. But as uh, myself and Jerry Earl were just discussing, uh, this has been... Um, decades in the works. We've been talking about replacement of HMP for an extended period of time. So uh, why we're at this particular juncture now um, is, a, is a question that uh, perhaps Richard Duggan can help to explain. Hello, Richard. Hello, Linda. So uh, what, what did the ministers have to say this morning? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of concerns now about, uh, you know, whether or not uh, about this essentially being another delay in what has already been a pretty long and, and drawn out process. So one of my big takeaways, and, and we spoke with the ministers at length, it was uh, for over 20 minutes we were talking with them, um, and the main takeaways that I got from it are that, one, they believe that this was uh, necessary due to costs ballooning uh, over the past couple of years, and they feel that they needed to sort of take a step back, uh, look at the costs, and figure out how they can uh, – they didn't call it cost cutting. They call it cost containment, um, and that, that was the first thing. And the second thing is that they um, have committed because – I had asked, you know, is this just what, how do you respond to people who say that this is just another delay? And he said that uh, Minister Abbott acknowledged that, yes, this is another delay, um, but they're on track now uh, to have shovels in the ground. And he did commit that shovels will be in the ground in 2025. Um, so, again, there, there was a lot to unpack with uh, what we just heard uh, about the situation at HMP. But those are some of the, the big takeaways that, that I had from uh, the 20-minute conversation. And they've identified a, a piece of property, have they not, for a new facility? Um, so I, I, they didn't mention specifically the uh, the piece of property. I guess now that is sort of, um, I, I guess that's part of what will have to be identified throughout this uh, uh, request for qualifications and then the RFP. I know that they had 
um, in the in the past when when they had made announcements about a new about a HMP replacement, uh, they hadn't mentioned that. But I'm not sure uh, where that stands right now. That wasn't that that's something that didn't come up uh, during the the course of the morning. And did they indicate um, you know why we're at this juncture now since 2020? You know, had they received any um, previous requests for qualifications uh, for the previous call? Um, so uh, the thing that they kept circling back to was the cost, and, and they said that it, it just became unmanageable, and that's why they needed to look at We did ask about why it took so long, because I believe it was over a year ago that they had had the first uh, request for qualifications, and they had sort of had this information for, for over a year, and uh, they said that they had to essentially take a deep dive into the numbers and, and, and look at where things were headed, and they uh, did a cost analysis with uh, various other prisons that were being built across the country, and they sort of felt that this was the right way to go in order to um, uh, uh, get the best bang for their buck, essentially. I know that they had said that uh, we had asked why re- uh, reissue this request for qualifications when you could see if the uh, one uh, proponent that was selected, if they could just make changes to their um, uh, to their proposal. And they said that that was something that they considered, but ultimately uh, they thought this was the best way in order to also give anyone else that would want to bid a, a fair shake at it and to hopefully try to get the cost down. Um, they did mention too, Linda, that uh, you know one of the topics that was brought up was that you go back to this, you issue the new request for um, qualifications and then the RFP. What happens if you essentially get the same bid back again? Because they said that there was only one person who uh, came through in the last round, and they said that that's something that they'll have to deal with if it comes to it. So they don't really know concretely if this uh, attempt at price containment will actually do that and will contain the price, or if they're just going to be back at square one in terms of pricing. In the meantime, they made mention of um, temporary measures to uh, keep things going there until a new uh, facility is uh, ready, uh, including temporary outbuildings. Did they go into that anymore? Yeah, so they did give a little bit of an update, and they didn't give a a whole lot concretely on when those buildings could be in place or where on the property they could potentially be. But they, uh, Minister John Abbott, did get into that, and he said that you know that is something that they will be evaluating over the course of the next couple of years in terms of uh, you know spaces for say dining or. uh, any of the other programs and services that they need to have. I know they did mention that they had uh, some sort of a, a trailer dropped off uh, just the other day um, for, I believe, some sort of medical. I I, uh, I I think that's what he said. I might I stand to be corrected, but he did say that they that they did have some sort of a trailer dropped off at the penitentiary the other day, um, where it would serve that purpose as being an outbuilding. Um, So they said that that's a process that's ongoing and that they will be looking at over the next couple of years as sort of the needs um, arise and they need to try to uh, mitigate the impacts of this aging facility until the new one is built. Richard Duggan, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. And uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan was at that news conference just a short while ago. And we'll have more details throughout the course of the day. VOCM's Brian Medore on standby now with the news. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Thanks a lot, Brian. And we are going to our uh, callers now. And Leo is on the air. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose, for a little fella. It's good to hear. What's on your mind? I'm going back. <laughs> I'm going to go back in time now for years and years and years. But I was just putting feelers out there. Now I was wondering this time of the year, Christmas and all as it is. I remember this fellow that used to go around on train playing the guitar and singing. <laughs> and I, I think, I do believe that he was from the West Coast, probably over around Port of Port somewhere. But uh, he used to spend a lot of time. He worked in the camps, eh? Uh, probably somebody might remember him. <laughs> Go around on the trains, you say? Yeah, singing and playing yeah, guitar? The train, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you spend a lot of time. You'd always see him uh, because we used to we used to ride a train a bit at that time. And uh, he was something else, I'll tell you that. But uh, talking about the camps, we worked in the... Get a little bit of light heritage here now. Get clear all the, the bad stuff. But we worked in the camps, I worked in the camps, and uh, we, the fellows that worked in the camps more or less had it, uh, had never had it in, but we were always at loggerheads to a certain extent with the crowd that worked in the mill. I worked in the woods department and the mill department, and uh, they were always telling stories or cracking jokes, and a lot of it you probably wouldn't be able to put on this program. <laughs> but I remember one that uh, they told a story about the fellow that worked in the woods, and he went in the cookhouse this morning, and he asked a cook for porridge, and the cook told him he never had no porridge. And he said, what do you mean you haven't got no porridge? Look at that box up there on the shelf, that green box. He said, R-I-N-S-O, porridge. So <laughs> that was that was wonderful. And then we get back at the other fellow, the other fellow get back at the crowd that worked in the mill, and the story went that this fellow that worked out in the woods yard he was a superintendent of foreman out in the woods yard. And at that time, that was in the early 60s, we started trucking wood into the mill. And this truck come in, and he looked at the truck, and he said to his buddy, he said, look, dear, he said, F-O-R-D, international, the same as my brother's. <laughs> um, so you, how long did you work in the woods camps? Worked for years. <laughs> worked for years. I was 15 years old. And did you get around a lot, like uh, different uh, camps? Well, Oh yes, from camp to camp. Well, I did because I was I was I was uh, on a dozer, so I was from all over the place. But then, then back in the, I was there in '59. Uh, I wasn't very old. I was 19, I guess then, when the IWA racket got out. I was on the go. Oh wow! Uh, you uh, you saw all that. Well, I never I saw it to a certain extent, but you know, I were I was working with Bowater, so uh, they never hit Bowater. They went after Habitibi which to my thought, I suppose, was a, was a mistake because borders was a lot easier to deal with than, than, than Abitibi. But after they drove the, <coughs> excuse me, after they got rid of the IWA, they went to the, uh, I think we they joined the Fishermen's Union at that time. And anyway, we became the Fish and Ships Union. And then... After that, they went to the carpenters and joiners, and the first agreement that we reached, they gave us an apple. They used, we used to get apple in the evening. They put pan apples on the evening, and we'd go in for lunch eight o'clock, and we could have an apple. So anyway, they named that one the Apple Union. So we li- we lived with that for oh, oh until eighty, I think. Yeah, I was eighty. That we no, yes, it was no ninety. 
that we uh, went for the other uh, million CPU. And did, did you see, uh, because you were there prior to and afterwards, did you see a marked improvement after, um, you no, know, was, changes? There was, no, there was no improvement. Uh, I mean, there was improvement to a certain extent, because at one time they, they, they took the camps and the woods all together, the whole shacks that they had, because I read somewhere in or so I was reading up on the... Uh, Strike and the thing there in Botwood, or not Botwood, Badger. And uh, one of the police officers that was interviewed said the biggest, uh, biggest, uh, you know, thing that the company was into, was uh, concerned with, was the fact that uh, these fellows would beat up their large equipment and stuff, you know, or whatever, in the camps. And I'd laugh at that one because all we had in the camp was two oil barrels. And we had one for a stove, and then we had the other one in back of that that one, and a pipe running out in the stove, and that's how we got our hot water. And you hear that cracking all night long. Mm-hmm. Such a contentious time, too. Uh, so how did the oh, IWA get, you know, on or or on Newfoundland and Labrador's radar, if you will? Well, see, uh, see, it was. <laughs> I don't know. It was unreal. You couldn't. You couldn't talk about. I mean, you couldn't even think about it. My father worked was cut wood for a dollar a cord, dollar fifty a cord, and uh, I know they were working up. I don't know, but I'm, I was told. You know, he told me they were working up back at Deer Lake somewhere, and they came home. And when they came home, their mother wouldn't let them live in the house. They even his brother and drove them out in the barn, and they took his clothes and burned his clothes, and you washed yourself in kerosene how to get rid of the lice. So you know what it was. Stories that they said, you know, fellow attorneys, uh, attorneys on were inside out, you know, and get hours sleep then. By the time the lice got back inside, you know, he'd, he'd have a nap anyway. But there, more, there, was, uh, it, there wasn't no big improvements. I, just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I worked. I was, I, was, I was union, but uh, we had this uh, carpenters and joiners for 30 years. Well, see what happened too, after Moss got killed there. We were more or less blackballed, you know. If you said you were in the woods, that was it. You were one of the fellows to kill Moss. Although, you know, there was only one fellow to kill Moss. What I mean, say, we were branded. And, uh, and uh, we uh, we certainly paid the price for 30 years because we never we never got another agreement for 30 years because the union that represented us, well, they were working hand in glove to go with the, with the, uh, with the woods, uh, with the company, and uh, they more or less, we more or less got what the company offered us, and that was it. That was one time. I mean, we had, uh, we got, we used to. If the million we got, uh, say, fifty cents, we probably got ten, and if they got a dollar, we got 50, thirty cents or forty cents, something like that. And and you know, the story goes that there was a fellow there, one of our greater operators, was working out in the mill yard. And uh, anyway, there was a young fellow working behind him there. He was picking up rocks, throwing up rocks or something like that. And he was a college student, and uh, he was uh, employed by the by the company for the summer. And this fellow, I know him well. He was a you know he was a greater operator for years. He was getting two dollars and fifty cents, and the fellow that was picking up rocks behind him was getting five dollars. You know, this is the kind of stuff that went on. Wow. Story goes there was one mill, <coughs> there was one fellow there, 
Uh, he was a wood superintendent, I guess, but he wasn't well liked. And there was a lot of stories about him. But the one that came out on the last of it was when he died. He was getting carried to the church, and he, he rose the casket uh, to cover out of the casket and looked around and said, how many pallbearers? And then somebody answered and said six. He said, lay off two. So that was another another. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was different. Leo, we might have an answer to your question that you started off the your call with. Yeah. Uh, does the name Kevin Beanland sound familiar to you? No, I know, I know, I know of Kevin Beanland. He might have been. He might have been doing that too, eh? Mm-hmm. But I doubt very much because this fellow at that time, well, I was only young, probably 19, 18, or 20 or something like that, but he was a fellow about 35 years old. So I don't think that age, the age bracket would uh, fit would uh, take that away. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll leave the question out there. Who? What was the name of the man who used to travel on the trains and sing and play guitar? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Leo, thank you very much. All the best to you now this Christmas. Yeah, take it easy. Have All righty. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we are back. We're going now to uh, Ray. You're on the air. Hello, Ray. And the present good day to you, Linda. How are you? Just come along fine, and you today? Good. Now, I, I was just listening to a gentleman there talking about the lumber woods. And my father worked in the lumber woods. And in 1952, uh, he was operating a D8 Caterpillar tractor, the largest one on the island. It had just been bought in by Miller Falls, I think it was. And he had um, an accident on the Caterpillar tractor, and they had to go seven miles back to camp to get a saw, to saw them out. Oh, my from, goodness, you talk about. From, from underneath a birch tree. And uh, back then, you didn't have a skidoo or anything like that, eh? So I imagine it would have taken him a while to get back in the freezing conditions in the uh, this time of year, he was actually buried on the 2nd of December in 52, 53. And I thought, you know, even though it's a long while ago, some younger uh, people that worked in the lumber woods might have a recollection of uh, when the accident happened up there. And they may be able to fill me in on some particulars. So he passed away? Oh, yeah, he died two weeks later. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, they brought him out to the Buckins Hospital, and uh, he was there for two weeks. And uh, he wrote a letter to my mother and said, I'll be home for Christmas. And uh, that was 5 o'clock in the morning. And 2 o'clock that day, uh, a blood clot struck him, and that ended him. My, his injuries must have been absolutely uh, horrendous. Yes, uh, well, Mother had seven seven of us to raise, eh? Uh-huh. And um, I was six-year-old at the time. <laughs> and, um, yes, he was just a young man, 42 years old. <laughs> yeah, I'd say if he had to live another 10 or 15 years, there would have been a whole bunch more of us. <laughs> no doubt. Um, but, uh, yeah, just extraordinary. What a woman your mother must have been. I'd say, yes, I, I certainly remember some of the things that you went through. Back then, you didn't have running water, of course, 
and you didn't, not everybody had lights, you know, and um, 52 was a lot different than it is today. So you were um, keeping the wood stove going and uh, and all of that stuff, you know, all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and you, um, she, she raised you all well? Oh, yes. Yeah. We all came through. I mean, uh, I got uh, two brothers that worked until they were 83 year old. Wow. Um, And so you're wondering if there's anybody out there who might remember or have heard stories about that accident. Yes, it's it's possible, you know, even though it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So where exactly did it occur? Uh, A place called Sandy's, I do believe. And he was in um, St. I forget the name of the hospital up there. I don't know if it was Deer Lake, but I know he did go to Badger at one point. So all in and around that sort of um, central kind of exploits, Gothic Lake area. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ray, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, we'll see if anybody out there might uh, happen to uh, have remembered hearing about that accident or uh, might even remember it themselves. I uh, appreciate your time, Ray. Thank you. Uh, Fred Party was his name. Fred Party. Yeah. Uh, all right. I appreciate that, uh, Ray. Thank you very much, and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. May okay. you have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Um, we're going to go now to Daryl. You're on the air. Hello, Linda. How are you today? Oh, good day, Daryl. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Uh, good show as usual. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Linda, what I want to talk about today is uh, uh, the banking industry. And the banks got over uh, half a billion dollars put set aside for default mortgages between now and 2026. So I got thinking, they got all this money put aside for uh, defaults, but rather than like let people go in default, why don't they just put the money towards to absorb the, the mortgages and, and, and lower the interest rates, even though I know the Bank of Canada got the rates set, but why don't they just lower the rates and use that money to absorb it that way versus letting people go into default and then use that money to cover for people going to default because what's going to happen, as you know now in Canada, we got a mortgage or a, more, a housing crisis. I think we're short about what three and a half million houses alone in Canada. So if you get all these people that go into default, where are they going to go to live if they, if they lose their homes and houses? So that money to me should be allocated and absorbed in another way that so people can keep their mortgages, keep their homes, and all the banks got to do is lower their rates but they use this money to absorb their costs that way because it's all profits. So and uh, so I can see the crisis getting worse rather than better. So I got thinking when I was doing my research, uh, I seen this. I said, this don't make sense. Why allow people lose their houses and then use money to absorb the loss versus let them keep it and absorb the costs and lower your interest rates? Yeah, and there's a, there's a growing... Um 
call for reform when it comes to uh, both uh, legislation and regulation around banking in Canada. Um, do you think it's it's time that the federal government uh, very seriously considered uh, making banks, I suppose, more accountable? Uh, you just took the words uh, right out of my mouth. You're reading my mind. I, th- I think this is what, what the federal government should be doing, is going to the banking industry and make them more accountable because they're making uh, record profits into the uh, millions or billions of dollars. And you can set aside half a billion dollars for defaults, and you got the money there and it's just set aside. Put it towards f- make sure that people don't go into default because – Everything went out of people's control because interest rates went up, interest uh, inflation, and as you know, the whole nine yards. And this is what went out of control, and not due to people getting mortgages, whatever. This is what happened in the economy in general past three or four years. So I, I think come back to what you're saying. Yes, I think the federal government should be going to the banks and, and either like talk to them, say, look, this, what can you do? to keep people from going in default. you got the money there is set aside. So do something about it, and or if they got to, put into the regulations. If the bank's got the money there, okay, they got to use this money to absorb the costs in a way that people don't go in default and they still keep their mortgages and keep their houses. Because if they do lose their houses, where are they going to go to the lift? That's only adding to the housing crisis. I mean, it's bad enough now as it is. People uh, can't get places to live or find places to rent, and they can't afford to buy houses. So if you get all these people going to default and lose their homes, uh, look at the, you're only adding fuel to the fire. Look, look at the mess we're going to have versus if we be preventive and proactive. Let's, let's take a different approach and avoid this rather than adding more fuel to the crisis and what's happening now. And that's my uh, outlook on it. And I think that's what needs to be done. And the federal government needs to act on it, not, not wait down the road. Act today. Do something now ahead of time. Because right now, that's what they're predicting what's going to happen from 2024-26. is going to be a lot of mortgages up for renewal. And you're going to get a lot of defaults if things don't change for the better. Daryl, I appreciate your um, contribution this morning. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Linda. And maybe on your evening show, sometimes maybe that could, uh, maybe you could keep it going that way and uh, get people on to talk about it more in depth and uh, take it from there. And again, Merry Christmas to you and your family, and the staff at VOCM and your listening audience. Audience, I hope you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Same and to all you. the best to everybody. Same to you, Daryl. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take uh, care. Alrighty. Bye bye. Bye now. And Daryl has had a last word on VOCM Open Line this morning. Um, uh, Patty should be back tomorrow, so uh, do uh, tune in then and uh, give him all your Christmas greetings and uh, wishes for the new year and all that good stuff. Um, on VOCM News Talk this afternoon, uh, Mr. Brian Callahan will be sitting in for me. Thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate that very much. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I know he's been working on a pretty good show, so uh, uh, you'll be uh, very excited to hear what he's got to say. Um, Thanks uh, for listening, everyone. We'll be back uh, tomorrow. Do join us then. In the meantime, we're up to news time now with uh, VOCM's Brian Medor with all the latest uh, in VOCM's News at Noon. And among the uh, updates we will be providing is this um, uh, news conference held just a short while ago um, regarding the um, reissue of a request for qualifications for Her Majesty.
Majesty's uh, Penitentiary replacements. So uh, stay tuned for that. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.